0: What a great week. Hey, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Good morning, you folks across the street, the video venue, and all you folks who are joining us online, wherever you are. Grab your Bible, wherever you are, and go with me to the little red book of Third John in the New Testament. Third John, and we're going to continue our study called Urgent this morning. While you're turning there, let me just remind you that I set the idea for this study up last week when I talked about the difference between the ease and the speed of communication in the 21st century that we live in today and The difficulty of communication in the first century when the New Testament was being written, communication in the first century was done primarily through mail, through letters, but there was no postal system in the first century. So sending letters was a pretty big deal. Uh, You had to find someone who was going to be traveling to the area where you were sending a letter. You had to try to talk them into delivering your letter. You had to tell them exactly how to find the recipient of your letter, and then you had to cross your fingers and hope that they would make the delivery, which means that letters in the days of the first century tended to be long and filled with detail and a lot of information. You can see that reflected in some of the letters of the New Testament. I'm talking about lengthy letters like Romans or First Corinthians or Hebrews, but even in those New Testament letters, as I said last week, even in those New Testament letters that weren't very long, they were filled with a lot of different information. They were detailed and talked about a variety of different subjects. That's why it's so unusual to encounter four epistles in the New Testament, four letters in the New Testament that were very short. In fact, they were only a chapter long, because if you were going to go to all the trouble to send a letter in New Testament times, you would think that you would make it worth the effort. But when you take the time to read these letters, and of course, I'm talking about Second John, Third John, Jude, and Philemon… When you take the time to read these letters, you see that they had information that was incredibly important. In fact, and this is where the title of the series comes from, you could say that they had information that was urgent, urgent to the readers. And so that's why we are studying these letters. We began last week by looking at 2 John, and right after the introduction, what John does is he reminds his readers, he reminds us about a command that's been around from the beginning, and that's the command to love one another. And then, in order to make sure that we do it well that we do it correctly, he spends the rest of the letter explaining to us exactly what love is. Do you remember that? He says uh, that love is fundamental. He says that love is obedience. He said that love is truth. And finally, he said love is personal. It was an urgent message of Second John. This weekend, we're going to move on to Third John, so let's not waste any time. If you've got your Bibles open there to Third John, wherever you are, just go ahead and stand with me like we do every week in reverence and respect for God's Word. And we'll read this letter together. I'm going to read the entire letter. It's not lengthy. Remember, it's just a chapter long. The elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that you may, excuse me, that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along well. It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are faithful in what you are doing for the brothers, even though they are strangers to you. They have told the church about your love, and you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. It was for the sake of the name that they went out, receiving no help from the pagans. We ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such men so that we may work together for the truth. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us. So if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us. Not satisfied with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to do so with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face-to-face. Peace to you. The friends here send their greetings. Greet the friends there by name. Okay, there it is. That's the reading of God's Word. We pray His blessing on that reading and His blessing on our hearing of it today. Now, 3 John is in many ways a different kind of New Testament letter, so let's just take a Few minutes and let me give you an overview. I'm going to mention three things about 3 John by way of overview, and the first two are very obvious. First of all, this letter is written by the Apostle John, it is the third of his New Testament epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. All of them bear his name. John wrote five books in the New Testament. Of course, the other two were the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. Something I didn't mention last week when we looked at 2 John is that in both 2nd and 3rd John, John identifies himself simply as the elder. Did you notice that? Those are the first two words of the letter. He identifies himself as the elder. The word John uses there for elder is the Greek word presbuteros. We get the word presbytery or presbyterian from that word. There's actually more than one Greek word in the New Testament that's translated elder. And so, in order to get an accurate definition of what an elder is, another word, English word used for the word elder is overseer, to get an accurate idea of what that word means. You have to put those words together because each one carries its own emphasis or its own meaning. Elders, of course, are the men who lead or oversee the local church. For example, here at this church, I, I'm not I don't ha- I don't have absolute authority in this church. I'm not the sole leader in this church. I work alongside a plurality of godly men who are members of our church here and together we Lead the church now. When it comes to the specific word "presbuteros," the emphasis, or the meaning, or the nuance of that word is the word, or is the idea of age or maturity. And honestly, it's more maturity than it is age. There's not like a minimum age that you have to be in order to be an elder. There's not a minimum age. We just know that older men are, for the most part, wiser men. Older men are men who have life experience that we can benefit from. But the main emphasis of that word "presbuteros" is the word. Maturity. And that describes John. Actually, the idea of age and maturity describes John because he was an old man when he wrote these epistles, the first, second, and third John. And so I love the way he begins 2nd and 3rd John by just saying the elder, identifying himself as the elder. And he didn't really need to say anything else because he wasn't just an elder, he was the elder. Elder, remember, he was the pastor of the church in Ephesus and also had a special leadership role over all the churches of Asia Minor, what is now modern-day Turkey. Those are the churches, remember, that we talked about when we studied Revelation chapters 2 and 3 in a series called Dear Church, Seven Letters to Seven Churches. Those are the churches of Asia Minor. Ephesus was like the mother church. That's where John was the pastor, but he also had a special role, relationship, and leadership of all the other churches. And I love this simple introduction of himself as the elder, because the older I get, the more interested I become in listening to men who have a been there, done that quality to their lives, or women who have a been there, done that quality of their lives. I don't want anybody who is a a millennial to take this the wrong way because the truth is every generation of people, whether you're talking about baby boomers or, or whatever you want to say all the way to the millennials today, every generation when you're young thinks that we have all the answers. I thought I had all the answers when I was 20 some years old. I I didn't think that anybody who was older than me had anything to offer me when I was 20-something years old. That's just a kind of the human nature uh, for people, and yet there's great, great value in listening to people who have age and experience and maturity on their side. Not long ago, I was in a pastor's conference. I'm, of course, you know, a part of an organization called the Solomon Foundation, and we put on two pastor's conferences every year, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, and uh, we limit the number of pastors that come so we can have personal communication with them. And we had a panel discussion one day. And all the board members for the Solomon Foundation who are pastors, not the, the entire board is not made up of pastors. There are some businessmen on there as well. But those who are pastors were in a, board, uh, were in a panel discussion. And the, the guys who would come to the conference could ask us any question. And so there were guys on the panel from maybe early 40s all the way up to mid-70s who were pastors or had been pastors in churches, and one of the questions that somebody asked was a great question. They stood up and said, if you could go back in time and you could do everything over again, what's something that you would have done different when you were younger, when you were like my age? Because most of these pastors were in their 30s. They were younger men, and uh, there were several answers given, but the best answer of all was given by one of the oldest members of our board who said, if I could go back and do it all over again, I would make sure I talked to and I listened to old older more mature pastors more than I did when I was young there's great value in age and maturity people who have been there done that aspect to their lives. John, that's why John just identifies himself as the elder. Think about who we're talking about here. This was, John was the last living apostle. After all the other apostles had been martyred, he was the one who died of old age. He was the last man standing who had an up close personal relationship with Jesus. When Jesus was involved in his earthly vocational ministry, he was so close to Jesus that he's described as the apostle that Jesus loved or the disciple that Jesus loved. And he was so close to Jesus that when Jesus was on the cross. One of the last things Jesus said in his earthly life was to John, he said, take care of my mother. He entrusted the care of his mother Mary to John and most people believe that Mary died in Ephesus while John was the pastor there. In fact, if you go to Ephesus today, we were there recently, we didn't see this particular site. But if you go to Ephesus today, there is a place, there's a a traditional site that they say was the last home of Mary before she died. There's no way to know for sure. It's more of a traditional site than a historical site, but I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility that Mary died while she was in the city of Ephesus under the care of John. And so he identifies himself as the elder, the elder. Listen, we really do need to listen to people with experience, regardless of our age. This isn't on the PowerPoint, but the very first part of Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 20 says, He who walks with the wise grows wise. Those are wise words. He who walks with the wise grows wise. Let me tell you a second thing about the book or the letter, the epistle of Third John. It is a very personal letter. I don't know if you saw that when we stood and we read it aloud together, but if you read it individually, if you read it personally, you'll see the personal nature of the letter. In fact, it's the most personal of all the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I say that primarily because it's addressed to an individual man named Gaius. Now we're going to talk more about who he is in a few minutes, but it was written to him. There are two other men that are mentioned in the letter personally: a man named Diotrephes and a man named Demetrius. And it doesn't appear to be a letter that was written to the church as a whole, which is the way most New Testament letters or epistles are. Even though the church is mentioned in verse nine, it seems to be a very personal in nature. The third thing I want to take, and this is really important: the third thing is that. Third John reveals a lot about the importance of hospitality hospitality You should really write that down because this is a critical part of understanding 3 John. It reveals a lot about hospitality. Hospitality was a big deal in the ancient world, and it was a big deal among God's people. I told you last week that uh, in ancient days, people didn't really stay in hotels or inns all that often. Remember, we, I said we have this, this this story. We know the story of how Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem before Jesus' birth, and they, when they got there, they found no room in the inn. But the truth is, uh, people didn't stay in inns that often in ancient days in Testament days primarily for two reasons. Number one, because oftentimes inns were connected with disreputable behavior. And number two, and this is probably the best or the biggest reason, most important reason, is in ancient days there just weren't that many hotels and inns that were established. It wasn't like you could be a member of Hilton.com back in ancient days and log on to your computer and put in the date and the location and get multiple options or choices for where you want to stay. There just weren't that many inns. In ancient days. And so, because of that, people were dependent upon the hospitality of others. They were dependent upon other people opening their homes to them. In fact, in the ancient world, hospitality was so important, it was actually regarded as a duty. It was regarded as a responsibility. Here's why. Because in ancient days, strangers, strangers were supposedly under the protection of a god, this would be a false god, a false deity called Zeus Xenios, Zeus Xenios, who was known as the god of strangers. The Greek word Xenos means stranger. And so people believed that they wanted to have that god, that god Zeus Xenios, on their side and not against them, then they needed to routinely be involved in showing kindness to strangers. Now here's the deal, if that's the way unbelievers or we could even use the word pagans viewed hospitality, how much more important was it for Christians to be hospitable since Christians lived under the command to love one another? And that's why in the New Testament, I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but that's why in the New Testament, there's such a strong emphasis on hospitality. In fact, we don't have time to look at this in detail, but let me give you just some examples. Look at these verses on the screen. Romans chapter 12 and verse 13 says, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 9, we read, offer hospitality to one another, notice this, without grumbling without grumbling. What does that tell you? Well, that tells me that hospitality doesn't come natural to a lot of us, does it? But we're supposed to do it without grumbling, without complaining. Hospitality was so important among believers that in the first century, when the church first started, when the qualification for elders were listed, and they're listed in multiple places in the New Testament, the two most primary places are first Uh, Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, when the qualifications of an elder, remember I talked about John as an elder, when the qualifications for elders were given, hospitality was mentioned. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2 says, now the overseer, that's just another English word for elder, now the overseer or elder must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, read the last word with me, hospitable. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 8, This is what it says about elders. Rather, he must be hospitable. Now, here's why. The word hospitable in the Greek language is the Greek word philoxenos, which means love of strangers. Love of strangers. Remember, we live under the command to love one another. To be hospitable means we love strangers. And so, in the first century... People opened up their homes to each other, believers, Christians, people just like you and me opened up their homes to other Christians. I'm not sure today with the modern-day church and church campuses like ours, just think about our big old church campus here that sprawls across 70-plus acres of property. I'm not sure we understand always or remember the importance of the home in the early church, but it was the center for everything. In fact, as you read the New Testament, you don't read about church buildings. Now, that doesn't mean that church buildings are wrong. You just don't read about them in the first century because everything, was done in the home or in outside areas like temple courts. And so when you look in the New Testament, this is what you see, that believers met in homes for prayer, they met in homes for fellowship, they met in homes for teaching, they met in homes for evangelism, they met in homes to break bread and share in the Lord's Supper, they met in homes for worship, they met in homes for discipleship, they met in homes for preaching, and just about anything else you can imagine. Everything happened in the home. And so since the home was the church, in essence was the church, it was just natural for first century believers to open up the their homes to one another and to strangers. By the way, that's the biggest reason why we call our small groups here in this church home groups, and that's why we want them to meet in homes. Makes sense, right? Everyone say right. Makes sense. But listen, beyond these things that we see in 3 John, this in particular, this emphasis on teaching about and understanding the importance of hospitality... I find another message in Third John that I really believe falls into the category of urgent. And that's a message about influence. And so this message is called the urgency of influence. Having the right kind of influence in our lives is absolutely critical for all of us. But let me just say from the beginning also to those of you who are parents who have children still in your home or you expect to have children one day, having the right kind of influence in the lives of our children is absolutely critical. That means we have to choose with great care the people we have, the people we give the opportunity to to shape our thoughts and our beliefs and our attitudes and our behaviors. And so the Bible gives us a lot of instructions related to influence and how important it is. Let me just give you a couple of examples, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. Proverbs chapter 22 verses 24 and 25, we'll put it up on the screen, say, Do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered, or you may learn his ways and get yourself ensnared. That's why none of you will be invited to ride in the car with me. I don't know what happens, but I become a completely different person when I get in the car. And I've been troubled about this for years. And I don't think public speakers should stand up and, and say over and over and over again their faults and say the same thing because that shows they're not making any progress. But I am not making progress on this. I'm not. You can ask my wife. We've been married for almost 35 years, and she'll tell you, I am remarkably patient in so many areas of life, but not when I drive, not when I drive. People know that about me. I ran into a couple after the first service, and they told me a horror story that happened to them in the roundabout, the roundabout from the pit of hell that's right down the street, and he said, I, I was good because I resisted the urge to honk. Because I thought, well, surely they're going to be going to church someplace. And so they continued to drive down the road in front of them toward Mount Pleasant, but they pulled into another church, which means they're probably not even Christians at all. So, no, (laughs) no, 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 I didn't mean that. I did not mean that. You know that. You know, I'm just trying to make you laugh. I did not mean that. Please. I did not mean that. But you got to avoid people who are easily angered because you don't want them to have an influence over your life. In the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, 33, and listen to me, look up here. If you got children in your home, you take note of this verse. You take note of this verse. In all seriousness, you take note of this verse, and you, you let it shape your parenting of your children. 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-three says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. How many of you know that's true? And it can happen so quickly. If you're a parent, you you have a greater responsibility in your life than making sure that your kids are happy all the time. You've got to protect their safety. And that has a lot to do with influence. These verses are saying, be careful who you let get close to you because the people who are close to us have influence over us. They can lead us in the right direction or the wrong direction. We probably have all heard the essay, at least some part of the essay, Children Live What They Learn. It's a great reminder of how... Uh, powerful influence can be we don't have time to read the entire thing let me just read the beginning it's related to children it says if children live with criticism they learn to condemn if children live with hostility they learn to fight if children live with fear they learn to be apprehensive if children live with pity they learn to feel sorry for themselves if children live with ridicule they learn to feel shy it was written as a warning to parents to be careful how they influence their children because what your children learn is going to shape their lives I've talked to a lot of people over the years. I've been in ministry for a long time in different churches, and I've talked to a lot of people who have been greatly and oftentimes negatively affle- affected by the influence of their parents, the brokenness of their home, the dysfunction of their home. And if that describes you, and I'm sure it does, I'm sure there are people listening to me in every single service this weekend who are described by those words. If that does describe you, then I want you to listen close. There needs to come a time in your life when you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop living under that influence. There needs to be a time when you say, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to unlearn the negative things that I was taught when I was a child. As much as I love my parents and respect them, as much as I want to honor them, I'm not going to let their mistakes continue to have a negative influence on my life. I'm going to break the cycle right now. I'm not going to pass this on to the next generation so it can continue to be passed on generation after generation after generation. You've got to stand up and say, it's done. You've got to unlearn that, and you can do that because there are two ways that we're influenced, friends. Two ways. First of all, we're influenced inadvertently. And this is, what I mean by that is this is where we just pick up the habits of the people that are around us. This is where we pick up the, the realities or the dysfunction or the brokenness of the home, the family, the parents that we grew up with. You know, it, it just happens we don't, we don't look for it. It just happens. It happens inadvertently. I was raised in Oklahoma, and then I moved to Texas, and I lived in Texas for 17 years, and then I moved back to Oklahoma, and I lived there for 10 years, and then I moved here to Indiana, and so I talk like someone who was raised in Oklahoma and Texas. As much as I want to say that I don't, I have an accent that's connected to the South, to where I was raised. I didn't try to get that on purpose. It was just the way I was influenced when I was growing up. We all have things like that in our lives But we're also, number two, the second way we're influenced is we're influenced by intention. And this is where we decide for ourselves, friends. This is where we decide for ourselves who we will listen to and who we will be like and we do that even to the point of what I mentioned just a moment ago, choosing consciously choosing to unlearn certain things that we may have learned in the past. And this is the kind of intentional influence that I see. The importance of this intentional influence is something I see in Third John, making sure that we choose the right people to influence our lives. So very quickly, let me just spend a little bit of time uh, sharing with you three very important truths biblical truths about choosing the right influence for our lives. I'm going to pull all of them right from this New Testament letter. Write this down next to number one if you're taking notes. We need to choose influences that are faithful. We need to choose influences that are faithful. I look back in Third John and in verse 2. Uh, John writes and says, dear friend, he's writing to Gaius, he says, whom I love in the truth. He says, dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you even as your soul is getting along well. And then verse 3, he says, it gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell me about your faithfulness. Your faithfulness, he goes on to say, to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, look up here. We don't really know much about this man Gaius. I'm going to tell you that my belief is that he was a member, he was probably a leader in one of the local churches in Asia Minor. I'm, I'm sure that's who he was. And John is probably writing to him from Ephesus because remember, Ephesus was like the mother church in Asia Minor and John was the pastor there. But we don't know exactly who he was. If you're familiar with your New Testament, you might know that there are actually multiple men named Gaius that are listed in the New Testament. There's the Gaius in Corinth that Paul baptized. There's the Gaius of Macedonia who was Paul's companion uh, when a riot broke out in Ephesus during Paul's second missionary journey, and then there's the Gaius from a place called Derby, who was one of Paul's companions on his final missionary journey. But none of those men are the Gaius that is addressed here. Gaius was a very common name in the Roman Empire. He was a member, a leader in the local church. It's clear that he was highly respected and loved by everyone who knew him. It was also clear that Paul had great affection for him because he began the letter to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. But if I'm going to pick out one thing that—excuse me—that John, I I, not Paul, but John wrote that to him. If I'm going to pick out one thing that John says about Gaius that really stands out is that John commends him for his faithfulness. Again, that's in verse three. It gives me, it gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness. And there's a lesson from that. We need to choose influences that demonstrate faithfulness. In their lives. Let me talk about that from just a general perspective for a moment. I I can tell you this morning, I can stand up here and say with integrity that of all the qualities that somebody can have in their life, of all the qualities, the one that I admire most in the lives of other people is the quality of faithfulness. I don't care what quality you mention, we all know people who are gifted, we all know people who are talented, we all know people who uh, are are resourced, we all know people who have great levels of connection, who are charismatic, but I'm telling you, of all the qualities that somebody can have, the one that I personally admire the most in people, and in many of you, is faithfulness. I'm sure that's influenced by the fact that I've been a pastor for a long time, and I've seen gifted and influential people come and go in the ministry of the church without making any real impact while it's been people who are faithful, that not only make an impact through the ministry of the local church, but it's people who are faithful, I think, that God uses to change the world. And that's why I love faithful people. That's why I love stories of faithfulness. That's why I love uh, the truth that faithful people make a difference because it's just so true. You know, when I was first in college, I, I enrolled as a freshman in Bible college in the fall of 1976. And when I was a freshman, one of the first classes that I took um, was called personal evangelism. And we talked about, you know, evangelizing just on a one-to-one basis. But we all t- also talked about evangelism in the local church. And this, shows, this will show you how old I am and how long I've been in ministry. But I remember having, a, you know, a really a powerful instruction about some of the methods of evangelism that were currently incorporated in local churches in America at that time and without question, the most effective one that was being used, and many of you won't even know what I'm talking about when I say this, but for many churches, the most effective evangelism tool they used was something called bus ministry. Have you ever heard of bus ministry? Some of my baby boomers, my fellow baby boomers, acknowledge me, give me some love this morning, okay. (laughs) Bus ministry, what in the world is that? Well, churches would literally have fleets of buses, fleets of buses, and every weekend, every Sunday morning, for example, they'd have bus drivers, bus captains, bus evangelists, and they'd load up those buses, and they would literally just go out into the community, go out into the neighborhoods, and they would just pick up people. They would pick up families. They would pick up children. This is a, the way a lot of children were won to the Lord in that day and age. And they would bring them in, and it was an incredible evangelistic tool. It sounds crazy to us today, but it was effective then. There's a lot of, I can tell you about a lot of evangelistic tools that have been used over the years that sound nuts to us today, but they worked then well, of all the churches in the country that were doing this, without question, the most effective church was located right here in Indiana. It was First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana. First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana set the standard when it came to bus ministry and evangelism back in the 70s. They had, I don't, I don't even remember how many dozens of buses and they had a huge church. They were one of the first mega churches uh, that was around. But let me tell you, They had a famous pastor, or a nationally known pastor named Jack Hiles at the time. But let me tell you a story from the ministry of First Baptist Church in Hammond that's even more important than that. Back in 1948, there was a young woman in the church. She had just gotten married. She was a newlywed woman. Her name was Mary Ruth Harrington, and she was asked by the leadership of the church to begin to teach a Sunday school class to teenage girls. She said yes, and she taught that Sunday school class every week for 65 years 65 years. She retired from teaching that class when she was 94 years old. She died when she was 95. She did it every year. Now, if you know anything at all about the First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana, let me tell you this. If you know anything about them at all, it is a church that over the years has been rocked, rocked by every single kind of leadership and pastoral meltdown that you can imagine. Every kind of leadership and pastoral scandal that you can imagine, the church has been rocked. Some of you may know about that if you've lived in this state for a long time. And as a result, they lost not just hundreds, but they lost thousands of members, but they never lost this woman. She showed up every week, and she continued to teach a Sunday school class. In fact, she's on record as saying, it would have been easy to leave, easy to stop, but teenage girls really need help, and I enjoy helping them. Faithfulness let me ask you a question. Do you have somebody who has been a huge influence in your life for no other reason than they have always been present? They've always been there. They've just been faithful. I think we probably all do. I have too many that I could too many to even mention this morning. And as I'll say it again, there are people who come and go who are talented, who are gifted, who are charismatic, who capture the attention of people, but it's faithful people. It's the quality of faithfulness that God uses to change the world. And we need faithfulness in the lives of the people who influence us. We need to be influenced by faithful husbands and faithful wives and faithful parents and faithful church leaders. And you can go on and on and on. Right down next to number two, the second thing. The second thing I see about choosing the right kind of influence in this letter is we need to choose influences who love and live the truth. We need to choose influences who love and live the truth. Now, we just talked about the fact that John identified identified faithfulness, rather, as a quality in Gaius' life and how important that was from a general perspective. Let's talk about it from a specific perspective for a moment. We look back at that verse 3 again. John writes and says about Gaius, It gave me great joy to have some brothers come and tell about your faithfulness, but notice what he says next. To the, what's the next word? Say it with me. Truth. Your faithfulness to the truth and how you continue to walk in the truth. He was not just faithful, but John says he was faithful to the truth. In verse 1, John says that he loved Gaius in the truth, and now he commends him for his faithfulness to the truth, his continued walk in the truth. And so here's the lesson. We need to choose influences that are not just faithful in the way that they believe, but faithful in the way that they live, faithful in the commitments of their lives, faithful predominantly to the truth. I told you last week that truth was a huge thing to John a huge thing to the Apostle John. You see it in all of his writings. In Second John, I told you that beyond, uh, that in the introduction to the letter, in just the first four verses, he mentions the word truth five times. You read through Third John and write down how many times he mentions the word truth in this letter that we're looking at today. And the word that he's using there for truth is the Greek word aletheia. That's the word from the original language and it means true with regard to things that are pertaining to God. So he's talking about truth, God's truth. He was faithful to God's truth. He loved the truth. John loved that about him, but he was faithful to the truth. And it's so easy. Think about this with me today, folks. It's so easy when we get in just to the business of life, when we get into the business of life and living, regardless of what your role is. It's so easy for us sometimes to make, make outcomes the main pursuit of our lives to the point where we're willing to sacrifice things to get certain outcomes in our lives, and oftentimes what we sacrifice is the truth. That's what we do. And when we sacrifice the truth, we get in all kinds of trouble. How many of you know that's true? And we have churches today that have sacrificed the truth a long time ago for the express purpose of just drawing a bigger crowd But when we sacrifice the truth about marriage, marriage suffers. When we sacrifice the truth about morality, morality suffers. Do we see those things in our culture today? When we sacrifice the truth about anything, that begins to suffer. We live in a world that's gone crazy. Think about the things that we're debating and discussing, the morality issues that we're debating and discussing in the world today and the culture that we live in today. We live in a world that's gone absolutely crazy and it desperately needs the truth my prediction, and I hope I'm wrong, is that as we get deeper and deeper into the evolution of, this, of, of life in this world, there are going to be fewer and fewer churches that are willing to stand up and open up the Bible and talk about truthful things from the perspective of God's Word, and I think those churches are going to get smaller and smaller because of that in some cases, but they're going to be more powerful than they've ever been before because they stand on the truth. And so John says, and I... He he admired this man Gaius so much because of his faithfulness, but even more than that, because he was faithful to the truth, to the truth. And he demonstrated that. It wasn't just something he talked about. He demonstrated. He lived that out. And we see that in verses 5 through 11. Let me just try to summarize that for you because we've already read it. He, he, He basically commends Gaius, and you can go back and look at it on your own, for demonstrating love and faithfulness, and truth, and the way he showed hospitality to a group of men that were strangers to him. He had shown hospitality to this group of men. They're called brothers, so they were believers in verse 5, that he didn't know. And he, John commends him for that and encourages him to continue to do that by sending them on their way in a manner that was worthy of God so they could continue to do what they were doing, which was spread the truth. And I don't know who they were. I think they were probably itinerant preachers. Maybe they were like missionaries. But they were so blessed by what Gaius did that they had stood up evidently and made a testimony about his faithfulness in the church. Maybe that was the church in Ephesus, or maybe it was in all the churches in Asia Minor. And the bottom line is, Gaius was a man who didn't just love the truth, but he put it into practice. He lived it out in his life. And here's the deal. Look up here. Not everybody does that, do they? There are a lot of people who like to speak for truth, and they like, they can talk to their blue in the face about how much they love the truth, but Not everybody lives the truth, and John gives us an example of that, Uh, beginning in verse 9. He says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, this guy named Diotrephes, who was just a big jerk, I guess, in the church that he was a leader of in Asia Minor, who loves to be first, will have nothing to do with us, so if I come… I will give attention to what he is doing, gossiping maliciously about us, not satisfied with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. And then John just point blank says in verse 11, Dear friends, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Basically, he's saying there can can be people who talk about the truth, who say they love the truth, but they don't live it. They don't live it in their lives. And he uses this man, Diotrephes, as an example. He was somebody who had wormed his way into a position of authority in one of the local churches but then was abusing his authority. He had received a letter from John but he refused to submit to John's leadership. Can you imagine that? The arrogance? The arrogance of someone who had refused to submit to the leadership of John who was the elder? A man who had had a front row seat to the very life and death and resurrection of Jesus? What kind of colossal arrogance would do that? So, he wasn't living out the truth in any way, shape, or form. But there are two things that I noticed about that. First of all, it was really a dumb move on his part because John was going to deal with him. If you look back there at verse 10, John basically says, don't worry about diatrophies. I'm going to take care of him if and when I come to visit. How would you like to be a fly on the wall when that meeting took place? I think it would have been brutal for diatrophies. I was in India one time. It may have been the first time I went to India. Some of you who are here might have been on that trip with me. And... We support, you know, we've been living link partners with Ajay Law for 25, 30 years, Who is I can't even tell you, I wouldn't even try, I don't have the time to tell you how powerful a presence he is in central India there because of the, the work of that mission. But we visited a church one day, and they would prepared lunch for us, and so we were sitting there eating lunch, and then Ajay turned to me, and he said, excuse me for a moment, I got to deal with an issue here in the church, and over here were some church leaders from that local church, and he turned his attention to them, and I couldn't understand what he was saying because he was speaking in Hindi, but he lit them up up. There's no other way to describe it. It, it, it was uncomfortable. It, you know, you didn't even know what he was saying, but it was uncomfortable. I mean, he just, just like you guys right here, man, if I turned over here and I just tore into you that's what it was and we were just all sitting there like oh my gosh what's happening and when he finished he came back over real calmly and sat at the table I said what was that about and he said well their pastor the pastor of that church had been a victim of a Hindu extremist he'd been beaten almost to death and because of that he'd been hospitalized he was not going to be able to serve the church for months and so the mission sent a young pastor to be an interim pastor and the leaders of the church were not submitting to his leadership because he was a young man and Ajay said that's not going to be a problem anymore. And that's what I thought of. As soon as I read that in Third John, that's what I thought of that moment. And so that's the first thing that comes to my mind. The second thing that comes to my mind is that just, you know, he just, John just reiterates the importance of living the truth, living the truth. Not just, you know, faithfulness, faithfulness to the truth, living the truth. Not just talking about it, but living it. And so we need to choose influences that live the truth. We need to do that. We need to choose influences for our children. Listen, if you're a parent and you still have children in your home, you need to choose influences for your children who live out the truth. And I'm talking, again, about the truth of God's Word. I'm not just talking about truth in a general black-and-white, right-and-wrong perspective. As important as that is, I'm talking about the truth as it pertains to God. And let me just tell you this because I've said this in every service. If you've got young children in your home, well, if you just still got kids in your home, whatever their age, and they're under your leadership, those children need to be a part of our youth programs. They need to be a part of our children's programming. They need to be a part of our middle school program. They need to be a part of our senior high program. They just need to. Because we have, we have good, godly, righteous leaders in those ministries. Chris Franklin, been our children's pastor for over 10 years. Mike Shealy, been our middle school pastor for over 7 years, 8 years, something like that. And Matt Pineda, who opened the service, been our senior high pastor here for just a few years. But these are tremendous young Christian leaders, tremendous young Christian leaders. And let me tell you something, and I want you to listen to me. They have the ability, they have the ability to influence your children for the rest of their lives. The rest of their lives... In a positive way. And I don't understand. I don't want to get in trouble with anybody. I'm not trying to offend anybody. But I just simply don't understand it when families in church do not make it a priority for their children to be a part of the children's ministries and the student ministries. I don't understand it. You say, well, pastor, my children don't want to go. They say I want to go. Well, let me just say this. With all due respect, and I mean that, with all due respect, do your children want to do everything you tell them to do? But who's the parent? Who knows Because of that age and maturity and experience that we talked about earlier, who knows what's best for them? And I'm just telling you, you need to choose influences. You need to make sure that the influences that are chosen for your children are influences who are faithful to the truth. Write this third thing down and we'll finish. And, Brian, you come out because I'm out of time. We need to choose influences with a good reputation. In verse 12, John writes and says, he brings up the name of another man. Remember, this is a personal letter. Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is truth. Look up here. A person's reputation is what gives them credibility or takes away credibility, right? It's a reputation. And there are times, I'm sure we've all seen this happen, when a person's reputation is either better or worse than his reputation or her real character. But most of the time, a person's reputation is what they've earned. My reputation is what I've earned. Your reputation is what you've earned. There can be exceptions to that, but most of the time that's true. And reputation is critical. That's why, again, if you you read in the New Testament the qualifications for someone to serve the local church as an elder, one of the things is a good reputation with outsiders. Henry Ford once said, you can't build a reputation on what you're going to do. In other words, it's action and accomplishment. It's your actions, your accomplishment that gives you a reputation. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 22 and verse 1, A good name is more desirable than great riches. Reputation is critical. And Demetrius was a man with a good reputation. And so that's the kind of person that we need to have as influences in our lives. In fact, I love the way verse 12 reads. It says, Demetrius is well spoken of by everyone. There's his good reputation. But it goes on and says... And even by the truth itself. He's not just well spoken of by people who know him. He's well spoken of by the truth itself. What does that mean? Well, let me put it in different words. Demetrius is is well spoken of by everyone because he lives the truth. Because he lives the truth, he practices the truth. He walks the walk. He's the real deal. Well, I'm out of time, so let me just say this. You may or may not think that choosing the right influence is an urgent matter for you or your family, but I'm telling you this morning it is. If you have any regard for me at all, you need to listen to me. I'm telling you that it is. It's an urgent matter for you. And John outlines for us the guidelines that we need to follow when it comes to choosing influences, the guidelines that we need to have in our lives when it comes to being influences. But let me just close like this. Regardless of where you may be in your life right now, here across the street, if you're listening to me online, regardless of where you might be in your life right now, regardless of, of, of the choices you've made in the past, regardless of who's, who you have allowed to influence you, who you've listened to and who you've followed, regardless of any of those things, I just want to remind you that Jesus is here and he offers himself to you regardless, regardless of anything that's happened in the past, regardless, regardless of any mistakes you've made, regardless of how far your life has strayed, from where you began, he's here and he's willing and ready to meet you right at the point of your need and offer you just exactly what you need to have a life of peace and a life of satisfaction and a life of purpose. Whatever it is, love, grace, forgiveness, mercy, whatever it is, you just got to open your heart to him. Let's pray.